Well, hey, Northridge Church, welcome home to each and every one of you. It is so good to be with you today. Let me give you a shout out and warm welcome to our campuses. Those of you who are online campus with Brad, our online campus pastor, thanks for engaging with us. We love our online campus. Those of you at our Webster campus with our campus pastor, Nate Miller, we love you guys out at Webster and to Rochester. It's great uh, to be together. Thanks for everybody investing in their spiritual journey with Jesus and walking in faith. We are so honored to have you here this morning. Welcome home. And you know, I haven't been around lately. And you might have wondered, you know, like, where'd Drew go? What's Drew been up to, right? I tell you what I haven't been up to, sleeping, all right? Because many of you know this, um, my wife and I, we welcomed our fourth child into the picture, yeah. Let me introduce you to the man, Baylor. Yeah, there he is. His brother and his sisters, I gotta tell you, he's a lot cuter during the day than he is at night. Uh, And his name didn't work out for Baylor in the NCAA double tournament. Sorry, Baylor, but it didn't work out that well. But anyway, we're excited to welcome him to our family. And can I just say, you know, every week I say welcome home. And I tell our church this all the time. I don't want this to feel like a crowd. I want this to feel like a family, because the church is the family of God. And can I just say thank you to our church, because through all the meals that we've received, the cards, the prayers, the notes, it has felt like a family to our family. And so I want to say thank you for loving us well. We appreciate each and every one of you. And so welcome home. And, and, and you know, the journey to, to bringing a baby into the world in our family is a pretty difficult one. Uh, My wife, you know, the nine months of being pregnant, it's a trial. Pregnancy is not good to my wife. She's nauseous every day. She throws up pretty much most days. She's exhausted. She's tired. And for nine months, it's an agonizing, grueling journey. And then, you know, I was reminded, because it's been a couple whiles, that like the birthing process isn't much fun either, right? You know, and I say that saying I had no, 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 nothing to do with that, right? And can I just shout out ladies? You guys are amazing. Thank you for what you do. And can I just say to God, thank you, Jesus, I'm a man. (laughs) Hallelujah. But here's what's crazy. The moment that baby boy sat on my wife's chest, it was like she forgot the previous nine months. It was like none of it ever happened. The pain, the struggle, the turmoil, getting to that moment, the birthing process. Once she saw that baby boy, the reward was worth all of the pain. And the truth is, isn't that true about our lives, right? No matter what it is, bringing things into our life, sometimes the most painful things, the hardest things in life produce the greatest rewards, right? Think Think about it like this, right? Some of you are runners. Lord knows why. Right, like who goes out and just like, yeah, you know what, I wanna run for fun, it sounds great. No, it it sounds like torture. (laughs) And some of you are even crazier, right, because you're, you're, you're trying and you're training for a marathon. And to me, that just declares, you've lost it. It ain't all there. And and part of the journey, right, to get to that marathon is you got to start at five miles and then seven miles and then 12 miles and then 15 miles and 20 miles. And that's just in the training. But but the moment you you cross the finish line, you check that off your bucket list, that reward was worth all of the struggle. 
Or, or maybe it's, it's in your finances, right? Where you're, you're a young couple, you're saving, trying to get that first home and you're saying no to a lot of things that you love, that you would want to build that savings so you can get those keys and open that home that you're gonna grow up in. And that, that reward is worth the struggle. Or maybe it's in a relationship, right? Maybe a marriage struggle or friendship struggle and you decide to go to counseling and counseling's hard because you have hard conversations. You deal with the tension and it's a hard, painful journey. But when you get to the reward of a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship, it was worth the struggle because some of the hardest things in life produce the greatest byproducts, the greatest rewards. And today as we zoom into Jesus's life, here's what we're gonna see, that the hardest moment in Jesus's life produced the greatest gift in your life. Amen, church? Amen? Amen. I'm just making sure you're awake. I know it's 11 o'clock, you got extra sleep, but I expect a little more out of you because you got it. But the reality is, the hardest moment in Jesus's life as he hangs on a cross gave you the greatest gift you will ever receive, ever experience in life. So if you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, I encourage you to grab your physical, your digital Bible, go to Matthew chapter 27, jump into the Northridge Church app, you can take notes. If you're using one of our Bibles, the Northridge Bible, it's gonna be on page 810. And if you haven't been with us, or maybe you missed a couple weeks, we've been in this series for three weeks now, this is week four, called Final Words. And in this series, what we're doing is we're zooming in to just one moment in Jesus's life. It's the moment, maybe one of his most famous moments where he's suffering, dying on a cross. And what's interesting about this moment is Jesus says seven things, seven statements while on the cross. And like our culture and every other culture, when someone's getting ready to die, their last words, their final words are significant. We hang on to them. We hold fast to them because they're usually with a very clear mind. And so we've looked at some of these statements, right? Let's review real quick. Nate Miller launched this series, did a phenomenal job, and he looked at this statement, right? Father, forgive them. It's crazy to think that while Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was thinking about the, the forgiveness of humanity. And then the second week, Nate Miller continued. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember the conversation between the two criminals, one on the right and the left, and Jesus actually ushers one of those criminals when he dies into paradise, into heaven, and then last week, Daniel continued the series. He said, behold your son, behold your mother. <laughs> Again, three statements where Jesus is suffering, but yet thinking of other people. The third one, he's taking care of his earthly mom while he's dying. And this week, we're gonna zoom into the fourth saying. We pick it up in Matthew 27, verse 45. It kind of sets the scene. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Now, something fascinating happens in this moment, it's noon. And we don't know how long Jesus has been on the cross suffering. We know he said three things. But at noon, the backdrop, the scenic view of this story, this narrative completely changes because darkness fills the land. Right? It probably was maybe a nice day, a sunny day, but all of a sudden at noon, the story changes. The, the background of the story goes completely dark. Can you imagine that? It had to be pretty eerie, pretty terrifying. It probably, some people were like, what is about to take place? And this darkness really shouldn't have surprised anybody because it was predicted long ago. The prophet Amos, look what he says. He says, in that day, 
declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all of your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end like a bitter day. It's crazy to think that hundreds of years before Jesus ever went to the cross, it was predicted that at noon, you want to make a prediction, don't really be that specific, right? Most of you get this, right? Because you didn't want to be specific with your choices in the NCAA double tournament. But at noon, darkness would fill the land, cover the land. And here it happens. You gotta ask the question, okay, why, why darkness? What's significant about darkness? Well, most scholars believe, and I would agree with them, that this darkness is a symbol of what Jesus is about ready to do. You see, this darkness is a symbol of, of the darkness in my life and in your life, the evil that we have chosen, the sin that we have. And as the backdrop of this story goes dark, it's symbolizing Jesus is about ready to take on the darkness of humanity on his shoulders. And as he does this, as the darkness presses in and sits on Jesus' shoulder, he speaks. Look what he says. Verse 46, it says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ele, Ele, lama shabachnani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you, when you, you think about these words, you can, you can feel the emotion from Jesus. Right, of all the, the, the statements, the seven statements, this is the one where you can feel the emphasis, the passion, the anguish as he cries out to his father. But what's interesting about these words is they're not original to Jesus. In fact, Jesus is actually just quoting the Old Testament. Psalms 22, verse one, it says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is just spitting out the very words of God. He's spitting out scripture. And before we, we look at these words and break down this statement that Jesus says, there's two things I want you to understand about the cross that will give us success as we look at this statement. The first thing we have to understand about the cross is that Jesus' death was different from any other death in human history. You see, what doesn't make Jesus unique is the fact that he was crucified on a cross. Uh, we, we, we make a lot of the cross because it's significant in our journey, but the fact that he died on a cross isn't that unique. In fact, there was a lot of Jewish people in the Roman Empire who died just like Jesus did. The Roman Empire was ruthless, and if you broke their laws, they would put you on a cross. And so that doesn't make Jesus' story really that special. It, it doesn't make his story special, the fact that he died. Guess what? Bad news, but we're all gonna die. Right, the Bible makes that really clear. But the difference, what, what is different about Jesus' death? Well, it's the reason why he's dying. Because you and I, we, we earned our death. Right, the Bible makes that so clear that we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And then later on in Romans 6.23, it says the wages or the penalty of our sin, our rebellion is death. And so we earned our death by choosing to rebel against God. The difference, Jesus did nothing wrong. And he's actually dying, taking our death on so that we could later experience life. And his story, his death, is different than any other death in human history. Secondly, second thing about the cross we have to understand is Jesus knew this day was coming. 
He knew he would go to the cross. That had to be terrifying. Right? Isn't it terrifying to know that something painful in your life is coming in your calendar? That's got to scare you a little bit, right? Let me put it to you like this. I, I, just, I don't like things in my calendar that I know are going to be hard, painful, right? You with me? And, and sometimes every once in a while, you know what that can be? The dentist. <laughs> I hate the dentist. Anybody else hate the dentist? Come on, make me feel good. Okay, yeah, yeah. My people, all right. And if you are a dentist, listen, I love what you do. I just don't like coming and seeing you. <laughs> it ain't welcome home at the dentist, okay? And, you know, if I look at my calendar and I know I'm going to the dentist and there's going to be like a, a, a filling or a root canal, and I'm going to have to listen to that like, like, oh, I lose sleep. It's terrifying to me. And we get this, right? Because some of you in, in this week, you have an event, uh, something scheduled on your calendar that's going to be difficult. Maybe you're a boss and you've got to let somebody go. You have to have a hard conversation with a friend, a spouse, and we, we kind of like dread those things. And here Jesus, from the moment he got on earth, he knew the cross was coming. In fact, we know this. Look at Luke chapter 22. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's talking to his dad. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's right around the corner from the cross, and he, he goes to his dad. He's like, Dad, is there any other way? Can we remove the cup? And many of us mistakenly interpret this verse, I think, wrongly. Because many of us, we think the cup is the cross. We think Jesus was afraid of suffering a physical death. I don't think Jesus was afraid to die a painful death. You know what I think he was afraid of? I think he was afraid of the cup. What is the cup? Well, the cup was God's wrath that was going to be poured out on him for you and I. The penalty and the payment of our sin sitting on Jesus' shoulder, the cup of God's wrath. I think he was terrified of that. Jesus later, Matthew 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. So he knew this day was coming. And so now we can look at the statement as the darkness presses in. As Jesus is getting ready to take on the sins of humanity, he cries out to his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so let's break this down, right? The first two words are actually repeated. My God, my God. Now it's interesting. I always thought it was interesting that God... Jesus would call out to God, my God. Like, it's interesting because you have to understand in, in the theological world, Jesus, God himself, displays himself in a trinity. And no one really fully understands how this works, but to break it down, the trinity is, is one God, the God that we worship, but displayed in three persons. So you have God the Father, you have God the Son, and God the Spirit. And here in this passage, we see a direct conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God. What is he saying to God the Father? Well, I think a couple things. I think first and foremost, just naturally as a human, he's crying out in pain and in anguish to a loving Father. But I think if you study it deeper, I think what Jesus is declaring here is his submission to his Father's plans for his life, even though it was incredibly painful. That in one of the horrific moments of Jesus' life, he's declaring to his dad by saying, my God, my God, I trust you with my life. I trust your plans. Even though this road is not easy, even though this road is painful, you are still my God. In fact, Donald Hanger says this is, it's impossible 
to assess what this may have meant to Jesus. This is one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative. So Jesus says, my God, my God, and then he says these words, why have you forsaken me? Remember, the darkness is pressing in on Jesus' shoulders. This is the moment in history where perfection wears imperfection. And Jesus, as he bears the brunt of our sins, he senses, he feels like his father has abandoned him. He feels like his, his father has forsaken him as he bears the weight of my sins. Think about that weight for a second. Think about what Jesus is holding on his shoulders right now. The entire sinful humanity, past, present, and future sins are resting on his shoulders. Think about it for a second. The weight of your and my disobedience. The weight of our lust and our lies. The weight of our harsh words, our gossip, and our jealousy. The weight of our cheating, our adultery, our gluttony, our slander. The weight of murder and killing, the weight of hate and injustice, the weight of cheats and lies, all of us, and the list goes on and on. All of our sins, your sins, my sins, the entire world's sins, past, present, sins you haven't even committed yet, are sitting on Jesus' shoulders. The landscape is dark, and, and to make matters worse in, and worse, in this moment, God is pouring out his wrath on his son instead of you. Just think about that for a second. Because God is a just God, and he must punish sin, he pours out his full wrath as Jesus bears the brunt of it instead of you. And this is why in Psalms 22, he says, why, God, have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Because in this moment where Jesus bears the punishment of our sins, he feels abandoned by his dad, by his father. Why have you forsaken me? And we get this at a small level because in our earthly relationships, we know what it feels like to be abandoned. We know what it feels like to be forsaken. Maybe it was in a marriage where someone went, and went out and cheated on you and it causes a divorce and there's this separation, there's this forsakenment. It happens in our relationships between moms and dads, sons and daughters, boyfriends and girlfriends and marriages and family matters. There's division based off of certain events and we get this feeling because we probably know what it feels like to be forsaken, forgotten, abandoned. And just think about your own life and your own walk with God. What often causes you to cry out to God, where did you go? Why aren't you here? Why have you left me? Isn't it usually our sin? You see, when we choose to, to walk in a different direction than God's, when we choose to rebel against God and we know it, we often feel like God has abandoned us, like he left us. And I think sometimes God just looks at us and is like, I never left. You ran away from me. So in this moment, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? And what we have to understand is this was the greatest injustice that fulfilled God's justice. Perfect Jesus was treated like imperfect me and imperfect you. 
It was an injustice because Jesus had never done anything wrong, but the part of the injustice fulfilled God's justice because God in his holiness had to punish sin, and so he poured out that penalty and that punishment on Jesus rather than you. 2 Corinthians says it beautifully. It says this, God made him, that was Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in Jesus and through Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, for a second, let's leave that verse up. I would love for us to leave that verse up and let's just take in these words and realize the gravity of what takes place in the gospel. Jesus experiences something that he never experienced on our behalf. He became sin so that through Jesus, you could become righteous. It's the perfect being treated like the imperfect so the imperfect could become perfect. Praise the Lord. Yeah, amen. And in this moment where Jesus ushers in this fourth statement on the cross, I think he declares something to all of humanity. I think he proves something. I think in this moment, Jesus proves his love for humanity. You see, what I love about God is God isn't like human relationships where we tell people we love them, but we treat them differently. God didn't declare his love. He proved his love for you by suffering on a cross on your behalf, taking on your penalty and your payment, paying a debt you couldn't pay and suffering so you could become perfect and righteous. I love Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy. This brought God joy to go to the cross. Think about that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. And so in those moments where you don't feel loved, in those moments where you feel abandoned by everybody else, recognize that you can't run from God's love. You can't get around God's love. He declared it. He proved it. He showed it to you tangibly. And he declared to all of humanity that he loves you. So you look at this story and you, you see the, the weight of what Jesus took on for our behalf. It's it's almost a little bit overwhelming. I, I mean, I was, I was prepping this. I was like, what do we do? I mean, how do you respond to such a gift that Jesus gave you? Because, right, don't you feel at, at some point, like no matter what I say or what act I do, it will never be enough to thank God, to show him our gratitude of, of what he accomplished for us on the cross by bearing the weight of my sin, not his sin, but my sin. How do, how do I respond to that? It feels like anything I say to prove my, my, my gratitude, my thanksgiving will be insufficient to, to a God who died in my place. So how do we respond to the gospel? How do we respond to what Jesus did for us? I actually believe it's, it's simple. I believe we worship the one who is worthy. I believe our lives should be dedicated to worship. And we get caught up on this word worship. It's become really churchy. We often define worship as singing on a Sunday morning. And that's part of worship, but it's not the package of worship. Because I think today as we reflect on the gospel, we reflect on Jesus wearing our sin. I think our lives should be postured 
our hearts and our minds and our souls and our actions should be postured in a way where no matter what we're doing, whether we're eating or drinking, going to work, hanging out with our kids, coaching, softball, going to the dorm room or school, our hearts and our minds and our bodies should be postured that we bring God glory in whatever we do. That is worship. Look with Revelation, the end of the story. It says, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That our job in in reflection and in gratitude for what Jesus has done, it is to worship him. I'm excited, you know, one way we do worship God is through singing. And next Sunday, March 27th, we have a night of worship. It's been a while. And I can't wait. And if you've never been to a Northridge night of worship, there's two services Sunday night, and they are amazing. And here's why they're amazing. It's not because we sing awesome songs, we do creative things. It's because we set aside some time to just forget about the distractions of life, the stress of life, and we set aside an hour just to sing and bring God glory and honor. And I'm telling you, nothing will fulfill you more than doing that. So I'd love for you to be there. Philippians 2, it says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You know what that means? Every knee we bow in worship in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so our response to the gospel is to worship. And so this means something for two categories of people. I think today, your first spiritual act of worship is when you surrender your life to Jesus. You see, there's some of you today that are listening that you still have doubts about Jesus. You still wonder, like, okay, is Jesus really who he said he was? Was he really the son of God? Did he really rise from the dead? Like, okay, I have a bunch of questions. And can I tell you, that's okay. We're glad that you're here and we will help you wrestle through every question that you have, every doubt that you have. But at some point in your life, you have to take a step of worship where you say to God, I believe in what you did for me. That I believe that I am a sinner fallen short of your standard, but through Jesus' cross and resurrection, he conquered my sin and gives me victory over it. And so today, someday, you have to make the choice in faith to believe with your mouth and confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord, to make him your forgiver and the leader of your life, and you surrender to him. I believe that is your first act of worship. And some of you today, you need to make that first step where you accept a relationship with Jesus. But for many of us today, we've done that. Worship doesn't stop there. It should continue to grow because we learn that in every area of our lives, no matter what we are doing, we can worship God. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. We're going to raise our hands. Some of you might kneel. Some of you might come to the front and just pray. But we're going to worship God. Because when we recognize that we were sinners with no shot, but Jesus bore our penalty, died on a cross, and gave us victory, how can we not worship him? So if you're watching online, I know this might be a little bit awkward for you, but I really want you online to engage with us in this moment. 
And so no matter where you're at, I'd love for you online to, to stand in honor of God and really engage with this song. For those of you at Webster and Rochester, would you, you stand with me now um, in honor of our Savior and what he did? And so here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna sing. And I want you to feel a little bit of freedom in this moment to, to give God worship however you want, to, to raise your hands and sing, to fall on your knees, to sit in your chair and soak in the words, to get out of your seat and come to the front of the stage, the side of the stage and, and pray. I, I, I'm leaving that up to you, but as a church united over so many homes in Rochester and around the states and in Webster and Rochester, let's join together in glory and praise and in worship to the one who is worthy. Would you sing with us?